Well, dear friends, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. You might wonder why you're turning to Psalm 103. As you know, we've been in a series in the book of Acts. Well, before we were doing Acts, we were in a brief series on the love of God. And I'm coming back to that this Lord's Day morning just for this Sunday. And in that series, we were reflecting on the nature of our God and recognizing His kindness toward us and the blessings that He gives. Why am I doing that? Well, I was away all week at Twin Lakes Conference. I wanted to bring you several greetings from brethren at Twin Lakes. Uh, I think all but two continents were represented, nobody from Antarctica. And not that I know anyone from Australia, but every other continent was represented Uh, And it was wonderful to see many brothers. Ligon Duncan wanted me to send greetings. Ligon was the the main preacher during Twin Lakes, and Ligon preached at the dedication of this building. And he was just thrilled at the mercy of God to see 20 years that we've been together as a church and praising the Lord for faithfulness. Uh, I bring you greetings from some missionaries that we support. Uh, Jonathan Winch uh, with the EPCW and the seminary. Uh, bring you greetings. Uh, Bertie Kona was here not so long ago, but he said to tell you hello again. Uh, the sons of the church, uh, Chad Watkins, Cliff Daniel, uh, John Stovall, all send their greetings and, and many others. You can ask me about various people that I saw. Uh, but it was a wonderful week. Twin Lakes has had an incredible impact upon the life of this congregation, whether you know it or not. Uh, in, in a sense, worship was reformed uh, according to Uh, this band of brothers that come around what's called an ordinary means of grace ministry. And it's wonderful to get together with these brothers. Well, we are going to be looking this morning at Psalm 103, just considering uh, the love of God together. And before we read the Scripture, let's seek our Father in prayer and ask Him to help us understand. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, You are a God who has spoken in Your Word. And You've been pleased by Your Holy Spirit to record the Word and preserve it for our benefit. And now we ask that You would speak for Your servants are listening. Take Your eternal truth and write it on our hearts. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to their to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, and you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, and all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Psalm 103 has been called by some a lyrical gem. Perhaps the brightest star in all the Psalter of the shining praises to God for His grace. It is a fitting text to help us see the magnitude of God's mercies and to fight against the schemes of the devil. You see, Satan is always busy stirring us up to believe that our Father has no goodwill toward us or no delight in us as His people. The devil wants all of you and me to entertain hard thoughts of God, anxious, doubtful thoughts of the Father's love. But this psalm, as many other places in Scripture, but this psalm, in a magnificent way, pushes out those dark clouds with the beams of the Father's boundless affection for His people. This psalm presses us to eye the Father's love, that is to look at it so as to receive it. And we're going to reflect on the psalm together seeing five things. It will be top-heavy. We'll spend more time on the first couple of points, but five things total. First, I want you to see with me the depth of the Father's love, the depth of the Father's love in verses 1 to 5. Now, David wrote a lot in the Psalter, uh, almost half of the Psalter. And sometimes we get a historical circumstance out of which he wrote a particular psalm. That's not the case with this hymn before us. But notice that David does begin with a striking and repeated personal command. Verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Now we should ask here, why does David command himself, directing his own soul as though he's grabbing himself by the lapels and earnestly repeating, bless the Lord, bless His name, bless the Lord, O my soul. Do you sense the force and intensity in David's language, David is doing what the psalmist often does. He talks to himself. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of talking to ourselves that some of us do. Maybe you don't, but 
I imagine most of us do, where you talk to yourself about the various tasks that you have to perform and you talk yourself through them so that you don't forget, or you talk about what you wish you would have said and probably should never say to that other person with whom you're fighting, and you talk it through and you have this little moment. That's not the idea here. This is a spiritual talking to yourself. And beloved, we have to understand in the Christian life that it's one where we speak to ourselves, where we address our lethargic souls and we command ourselves to do the right thing. We see this famously in Psalms 42 and 43 in a question and answer form where the psalmist asks himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he answers himself. Some of you have heard you're not supposed to answer yourself because then you know you're crazy. Well, the psalmist does it. He asks himself a question. Why are you so downcast? And then he tells himself, hope in God. And three times this language occurs. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his very famous book, Spiritual Depression, commenting on Psalm 42, he perceptively says this. He says, the main art... The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself and question yourself. That's exactly what David is doing here in Psalm 103. This is the heart work that is necessary so that we would worship rightly and live rightly. And I would argue that David is full of intensity to shake off the apathy in his heart. Now, we all know the struggle if we're honest. The hour of worship has come. The time to sing God's praises, to hear, or if you're me, to declare His Word, that's upon us. And yet our souls are flat. We are unthoughtful. And unfeeling, there's a dullness that sticks to us. There's a distraction from worldly cares. Maybe it's the pull of sin. We don't feel like we're desperate for the public worship of God or communion with God. We don't feel dependent upon God's promise to cheer us or encouraging us. We're just on autopilot. We're just moving through. We're dragging spiritually and we're in danger of the seducing influence of the flesh. Or, we're just failing to delight in the Lord who made us and sustains us and saved us and has given us every good thing that we possess. So we need to rouse our hearts to engage. We need to, as it were, pour gas, gasoline on that flickering flame so that our spiritual fire is set ablaze. We need to upbraid ourselves, to exhort ourselves to the duty of praise. And we need to tell ourselves, and write this part down, don't you even think about coming into worship to Almighty God with mere lip service. Because what did Jesus say about that? Your lips honor me, but your heart is far away from me. David wants a heart that's all in. Do you see how he says it? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. No holding back. No allowance made for half-heartedness, for vain 
cold and distant affections. Engage your whole being in praising this covenant God. He's the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, a God who's made Himself known to me, a God who saved me, and I want to honor Him. Beloved, in all of our acts of worship, we should summon our whole nature to the Word. That our intellects would know God. That our wills would choose God. That our hearts would go out after God. That our confidence would lean on God. That our love would delight in Him. And our tongues would praise Him. Can you resonate at all with Wesley? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Are you engaging all that is within you to bless the Lord? You don't have to be running around and throwing up your hands, dancing in the aisle, and shouting things that really have nothing to do with what's being preached to be like this. But you may be under the impression that you can just sit calmly and disengage and that would be acceptable. It isn't. You must be all in blessing the name of the Lord. And then to fire his soul, David begins walking through the vast benefits that the Lord has bestowed upon his people. What does he say about what all that God has done? Well, he begins to pour out how we are to remember the benefits of God. Do you see how he gives that command? We don't come in forgetting his benefits. This is the problem constantly with God's people. Like the book of Judges, chapter 2. They did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. They were unmindful of Moses' warnings. Do not forget. It's also the problem of Israel in Hosea's day. Yahweh says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They've forgotten the Lord and His law, which begins with a reminder of His benefits. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery apostasy begins with forgetfulness. Which first leads us to formalism, a going through the motions, and then ultimately to flaking out in any approach to heart worship. David is saying, I will not have my heart pull me in that evil direction. He pursues communion with God. He wrestles to get his soul in the right frame. I want to remember the benefits of the Lord. And then David begins to articulate them. Now, he's not comprehensive as he describes the benefits, but he mentions several things. It's wonderfully summarized by a hymn we'll sing in a little bit. Henry White's poetic reflection on Psalm 103. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To His feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me His praise should sing? Why are we still singing the old hymns? Can you do better than that? David pauses here to look at what God has done. And what has God done? Well, verse 3, the Lord forgives all your iniquity. David is speaking to himself and saying forgiveness has come not for some of my iniquity, not for most of my iniquity, but for all of it. All of that inner twistedness, that heart level filth is cleansed. What a staggering truth. My God is a God who abundantly pardons. 
when iniquities prevail over me like they're a flood, going to crush my soul, my God atones for my transgressions. But not only that, it's not just that His grace restores, His grace renews. All the rot in the soul, all my spiritual disease is healed by His grace. When I am nothing, to use Isaiah's language, Isaiah 1, when I am nothing but bruises, sores, and raw wounds from the top of my head to the sole of my feet, the offering, the sacrificial offering which I bring in faith, it covers me. Propitiation is made. And there's healing to my soul so that I'm at peace. I have security. And brethren, how much more should we grasp this in David when we see what it costs to forgive us? When we look upon Jesus, the Father saw His people as sheep going astray and He took all of our iniquity and He laid it on His Son. And it is by Jesus' wounds that we are, what's the word? Healed. Why does this happen? One reason. And one reason alone. Because of the love of the Father. How deep the Father's love for us. Do you eye that love and stand astounded? But there are more benefits. David says to his soul, verse 4, that the covenant Lord redeems your life from the pit. Now, redeem is a word of great cost. He's saying a price has been paid. A rescue mission has occurred where everything necessary for freedom has been accomplished by the loving act of God. But what exactly is the deliverance? Is this a pit of trouble? David's been in plenty of those. Or is it something worse? Well, Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9, uses similar language. Helps us understand this text. The psalmist there in Psalm 49 says as follows, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit the pit there isn't merely the grave. It's the corruption of the grave. It's the sting of death and the eternal horrors that face the wicked or all who are disobedient to God from which we can never redeem ourselves. But David, though he doesn't explain how, he says there's a redemption from that corruption, from the pit, from the cursed death. Psalm 49 verse 15 confidently asserts, that while death will shepherd the wicked. What a striking image that is. Death will lead the wicked to death. Death will be their shepherd. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Is death your shepherd? Or do you have a redeemer? How can David have this confidence? I think David is looking to God's promise of a forever king that was given to him in the Davidic covenant. And he recognizes there is no forever king on a forever throne without redemption from Sheol or redemption from the grave. And yet the Lord promised, Psalm 16 verse 10, that His Holy One, the great Davidic king to come, will not be abandoned to Sheol. He will not see 
The pit, literally. Same word as here. A great benefit of inexplicable grace is that the Lord our God will ransom us. He will pay the price for us, the guilty sinner, so that death doesn't dominate us. Now how can it be that such love should come to David? Do you know what this guy did? How could God take him and raise him from the ash heap of curse and bringing him into blessing? And doesn't love that's shown like this demand a praising soul? How much more for us? But the blessings keep coming. He says the Lord raises us to the place of a king. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now David is a king, but I think he's echoing the language of kingly Adam before the fall. Psalm 8, Adam was crowned with glory and honor, but he sinned and lost it all. He sunk us all in ruin. And yet God determined to overthrow that ruin and to crown His people, those looking to the Savior, and He would not allow the curse that currently clings to us to dominate us, but rather He would give us covenant love and tender mercy. And if that weren't enough, the Lord satisfies David, satisfies all all of His people with good. He gives us all the good that we receive so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. In other words, God's abundant benefits give strength and vigor. You may be shriveling into oblivion as you look at yourself in the mirror. But somehow, you're being renewed. How is that? In the inner man, the mercies of God are bringing about life. How can such love be shown to us? How can these blessings meet us? How can the Lord allow we, these frail creatures of the dust, to know all of these benefits? Again, one reason. It's because He loves us. And brethren, that love which we eye, which we should study to take in, to inwardly digest, it should cause you and me to explode with praise. We shouldn't come into the Lord's presence like we're a leaky vessel, forgetting all that He's done for us. No, we come mindful of His staggering love and we passionately worship. Is that the state of your heart? But then secondly now, see with me. The source of the Father's love. Now verse 6 begins a transition in the hymn where David is still pondering the benefits God gives His people, but he starts thinking of a particular time. He says, literally, the Lord works or does righteousnesses, or we might could translate, He does righteous deeds, plural, and justices, plural. In other words, our God has a pattern of putting things right for all who are oppressed. And what better episode do we have to see that than the Exodus itself? Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord saw the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed His people. He heard their cry, and He remembered His covenant. Well, now David begins to look back at history to see what God did. He, verse 7, made known His ways to Moses. The Lord stooped to reveal His righteous acts to Israel. Now, of course, His ways and acts are not only seen in the Exodus itself, they are seen in the Exodus period which is followed by the wilderness wanderings. And if there were a story in all the Bible which would serve as the poster child of benefits 
forgotten, what story would it be? He would be Israel in the wilderness, the forgetfulness of the Exodus generation. From the moment they leave the Red Sea, having sung the praises of God for His deliverance, when thirst and hunger come to them, how do they respond? They grumble. They doubt God's ability, even though He just sent ten plagues and brought them through the sea. They question His wisdom. They ignore everything that He did for them. They were ready to turn back painting pictures of Egypt that were filled with lies. Oh, we remember the leeks and the cucumbers and the melons. And that satanic ingratitude culminates in a horrific moment when Moses is on the mountain receiving the law and they goad Aaron into making an idol for them before whom they are going to worship. And the whole affair sinks, of course, into covenant breaking. The covenant that God just made with His people. And the Lord says, I'm not going to go with this people. Now that word overwhelms Moses. Uh, Moses came, he pled for forgiveness, he pled that God might relent. But then in Exodus 33, he pleads for God's presence. It's unimaginable for Moses to go up from this place without God going with him. Would you want to go up with this people? Lord, you must be with me or I can't move forward. And in that context where Moses is crying out for communion with God, God is pleased to further reveal himself, to reveal his name. Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passes by and says that He is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness or truth. Well, look at verse 8. It is virtually a quotation of Exodus 34, verse 6. And it's one of the eight or so, <clears throat> eight or so repeated declarations of God's character, almost word for word. It's kind of striking that it's so often repeated in the Bible. That should strike us. Oh, the blessing of a God who will repeat Himself. Tell us again what He is like. Remind us of who He is because He knows what we're like. We forget. This is the third time in the Psalms that David intentionally quotes this text and specifies. He does it also in Psalm 86 and Psalm 105. And it's as though David knows, and you should pay attention to this, it's as though David knows one way to fight forgetfulness in your heart is to quote Scripture to yourself. What a novel idea. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. One way you fight the devil, as Jesus did in the wilderness, was to speak the truth to him. This is what God says. Do we do that? Do you have a command of the character of God revealed in the Word, of the promises of God revealed in the Word, so that you can speak Scripture to yourself. When Ephesians 4 tells you to speak the truth in love, or the Bible tells you four different times by my memory, to encourage one another, what are you to use? Don't worry, all things will work out. Well, that's what the world likes to say. It's not going to work out. This world is going to end in fire. What will be good though for us is we have an eternal hope in the heavens and God has given us the hope of the glory of God. That's a Bible verse. Quote Scripture to one another. David's seeing that. He's speaking the character of God into his heart. And he's recognizing 
Look at what God tells me of Himself. It's incredible. While man vacillates and our expressions of loyalty rise and fall, the Lord remains the same. He's unchanging in His commitment to His people. And while man is quick to wrath and he nurses grievances and he looks for opportunity to get a pound of flesh, I'm going to make you pay. That is not what God is like. He will not always chide nor keep His anger forever. The Lord is not ruthless. He's ready to pass by transgression. He longs to be gracious to His people. He doesn't keep quarrels going. You ever been with people who just seem to like to fight? It's exhausting. That's, what not, that's not what God is like. In verse 10, He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And of course, the immediate question here is, how can the Lord not repay us or make us answer for our sin? Because He's just. In fact, if you keep reading Exodus 34, which Dave is alluding to, the very next verse from the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, the very next verse says He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh-oh. I'm guilty. So how can the Lord not visit wrath upon me? David does not explain that right here. It's an Old Testament conundrum. The sacrificial system gives you something of an idea. But a moment's reflection on the fact that you offer sacrifice, you sin, you've got to offer sacrifice again, you sin, you've got to offer sacrifice again, it tells you this is not going to work. There must be a substitute to satisfy God's justice who is also a demonstration of grace. We know that we can't read this whole statement of David's and think God will forgive. That's His job. What an assault on God's holy character. Furthermore, that would make forgiveness an obligation as if God owes us something. No, the marvel of grace, dear friends, is that God does not repay us at great cost to Himself. And the New Testament will reveal just how great the cost is when God the Father will spare not His only Son, but deliver Him up for us all. And with the blood of Jesus covering us, the chastisements from the Father's hand fall on Him so that we would have peace. The Redeemer faces wrath so that we won't face condemnation. But here's the truth we can know. The Lord will never crush us because He crushed Christ in our place. And why did He do that? Well, He did it out of love to us. Does that amaze you? That the Father in love for you would destroy the darling of heaven. And when we are disciplined for particular sins, when the Lord humbles us, what assurance do we have that we are not incurring strict justice sending us to our eternal death? It's the character of God. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change and therefore you are not consumed. If God changed, He'd just kill us all. But He doesn't change. And we're preserved. He bears with us. Beloved, do you eye this mercy from the Father? Do you see His bountiful dealings? Are, are you conscious of provoking crimes and how the Lord puts up with you and pardons you in Jesus? Third, we see with me. 
the expanse of the Father's love. David now begins to elaborate with figurative images to try to capture the deep, deep love of the Lord. And what's the explanation for God's difference with man? Well, while we're quick to strike, the Lord isn't. And the explanation is His character. Look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. The heavens here serve as an image of height. And we could engage this morning in scientific measurements about what we see in the sky and how far it is from the earth. We could talk about the 93 million miles the sun is from the earth. We could talk about the closest star, Alpha Centauri, 4.37 light years away. On and on we could go. But the point of the image is not to engage in scientific scrutiny. It's to convey what is immeasurable, to capture infinity. David is saying, there are no bounds to the love of God. And it is this immense love of God that explains why we're not destroyed. Paul will capture this in Ephesians 2, you remember, after he spelled out that we were dead in sin and defiant in deeds and dominated by the devil and doomed to wrath, even like the rest of mankind. Next words, the glorious words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How great is the Father's love? David's saying it's so great it can't be measured. His expanding love is the reason our souls, mired in the muck of spiritual death, are raised to life. Further, it's the greatness of His love that gave an indescribable gift. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then there's another description of an immeasurable distance. Verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Again, the image depicts an infinite distance because if you're standing and and looking you know east and west right they seem to be infinitely far away from each other as you look both ways now if you're being snarky well the earth is spherical and they're going to catch up with each other well, he's not thinking like that right it just as we can survey the landscape east is far from west and with this imagery i think it's not hard to recall the day of atonement where they took, you remember, a live goat, hands were laid on the goat, and that goat was then led into the wilderness. And the picture was, sin is being removed far away from you, where you can't see it anymore. And for the worshiper for Israel, the notion was, the burden of guilt and shame are gone. Doesn't that imagery confront our unbelief? You see, when we sin... I know it is this way for me. I'm assuming it's this way for you. When we sin, the devil loves to come and rub our nose in it. To remind us of our shame. To have you in a moment of stress remember things you did 30 years ago. To bring you to shame and threaten you. You can't come to God in your filth. But the truth is, we lay our hands on Jesus the spotless Lamb of God, 
And He bears them all and He frees us from the accursed load. We are cleansed. Our sins are removed. So we don't have to approach our Father with heaviness in the soul, with shame and doubt and questions as to whether or not He'll actually receive us. No, we come before the Lord in full assurance of faith because our heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water through the blood of Jesus. We are covered and the Father welcomes us as His own children cleanse in Christ. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But there's a third image David gives. He turns from the expanse of God's love to the intimacy of a family. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Now, Jesus will pick up this imagery to describe the way our Father loves and hears us. If our son asks for bread from us, would we give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would we give him a snake? Well, of course not. Well, Jesus said, if you then, do you remember the next phrase? Who are evil. Jesus just called us all evil. I want you to really let that sink in. This is not some angry bearded guy with a fire red face telling you you're evil. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, has just called man what He is. Evil. But here's the contrast. God isn't. So if we corrupt people would give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in Heaven know how to give good gifts to His children? He knows us. He pities us. He cares for us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. What does this mean? The Lord, brethren, knows our constitutional temperament. He knows the feebleness of our understanding. He knows the strength of our fears. He knows the shattered state of our nerves. He knows the violence of our temptations. He knows our readiness to sink into melancholy. And rather than knowing all those things about us and saying, man, you're an emotional mess. I don't want to have anything to do with you. No, He knows our frame and He pities us. This is a beautiful thing about the Lord our God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the knowledge of God is frightening. You can't hide from Him. And He will bring you to account. But if you're a believer, the knowledge of God is of supreme comfort. The Lord knows the depths of my struggles in a way that I don't even comprehend. And He loves me still. How do I know? I've been inscribed on the palms of His hands. Here is a love that doesn't let go. Fourthly, picking up swiftly here, the length of the Father's love. David now draws another contrast between God and man. Verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. What humility this should produce in us this morning. We've just been told we were dust, and now we're being told we're like grass. We're like the desert grass, which soon vanishes, or the flower of the field. We spring up as a thing of beauty and strength, but then the wind blows on the flower, not even tornadic winds, just a normal wind. It blows and 
poof, it's gone, and its place knows it no more. The flowers have no lasting stability. But what's the point of the imagery? That's us. We vanish quickly. Our lives are but a breath. Death hastens upon us. We're not eternal. And those facts should remind us of our creatureliness, even our sinfulness, because the reason we're going to dust and we're fading away is because of sin. But look at the difference with God. Verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. David is saying here, we can't trace the love of God back to its beginning and find the end of it. That is where it started. There is no gap in the love of God. You can't search your life for a missing moment on July 2nd, so-and-so year, the love of God wasn't there. No. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. You, you look at the history of the world, you contemplate the future, and there was never a moment where God's love wasn't on His people. You can go back before the beginning of time, and you can find covenant love which chose you and adopted you through the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be His people. You can go all the way forward into eternity future, and you will never find a moment where God's love stops. Look at the length of the love of the Father. What assurance and comfort that should bring to the Christian. My Father's love for me is going from everlasting to, an, to everlasting. It never stops. And yet as we look at it, note the particular with regard to this love. It's a particular love. It's on those who fear the Lord in His righteousness to children's children. That is, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. How do we evidence our love for God, the God who loved us? We fear Him. We keep His covenant. We remember, that is, we are steadfastly focused on Him, on obedience to Him. We don't do this to merit His love. He has loved us from everlasting to everlasting. Before you were born, before you did anything good or bad, the Lord set His love on you. But if you are one loved by God, then what do you do? Whether that's us or our children imitating us. We pursue obedience. Jesus had this really profound statement. You've all probably heard so much, you've got it memorized. If you love me, as a finish, keep my commandments. Are you eyeing the love of God? How can we tell? Well, is love producing obedience? Is love producing obedience? How can we be sure that all the above holds true, that God's love never diminishes, and that His mercies won't fall apart? Because, verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. God's throne is above all creaturely corruption and change, all evil powers. He rules everything. His purposes never fail. And that means neither will His love. Finally, and very briefly, verses 20 to 22, the response to such love. The response is emphatic in view of the repetition, because four times we're told the same thing in case we're slow to hear. Verse 19, bless the Lord. 
Now that command comes to the Lord's angels. They should bless the Lord because they're His angels, because they've been endowed with might, because they're called to obedience to do God's Word, and they were made to wait upon His voice. And in view of all of these things, they should bless the Lord. And then David turns to the hosts of the Lord, His ministers who do His will. This could be a particular group of angels, or it could be the heavenly bodies, as Henry Light will put it. Angels help us to adore Him. You behold Him face to face. Sun and moon bow down before Him, dwellers all in time and space. David is then turning to the other parts of creation, to everything under the Lord's dominion, and he calls on them to bless the Lord. If they're inanimate like rocks or they're creatures who have breath in them, doesn't matter, bless the Lord. And then for good measure, David comes back to where he began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The sentiment is simple, and we'll close with this. Whatever others do, let my service be to God. Whatever others love, let me love my Redeemer. Whatever, whatever others glory in, let me glory in the Lord. This is my first and great business. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Why is this your great business? Because the Father loved you. May it drive us all to bless His holy name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at all that You are and all that You have done. And Lord, we stand in awe of Your goodness to us, not treating us as our sins deserve. We marvel at the gift of Your Son to ransom our guilty souls from the pit. And we pray, Lord, that something of our delight in You and affection unto You would come out, even as we sing in just a moment, that it would come out in the way that we live from this day forward. Lord, draw near to us that we would take hold of ourselves and rouse our affections to sing to Your praise and honor You in all of our lives. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.